Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today, I'm very excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking a lot about building, scaling, financing, all the good stuff that we like to hear. And I think that, you know, also the fact that this founder, you know, and the way that they've gone about going global, you know, very, very quickly, you know, I think that is something that's going to resonate too and something quite unique. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Philip Kelvin. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alejandro. Great, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So originally born and raised in London, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, it was, uh, I think I was very fortunate with, uh, with, with my upbringing, big focus of education on my family, um, big focus on just, you know, as working as hard as you can and uh, not only comparing yourself to others, um, but just try to do everything that you can to their highest possible standard. Now, in your case, you know, you did your school there. I mean, you went to Cambridge as well. Now, when it came to studies, you know, you studied history. So out of all things, why history? Great question. I think one of the things that we're quite lucky at in the UK and also to the US as well, um, but potentially slightly different to Europe, is that we are kind of encouraged to do things we're interested in. Um, as opposed to purely professional items. I always got this question when I first started in, in banking from my French colleagues to say, you know, why are you not a librarian? Um, you should have become a librarian, you know, not, not doing finance. You know, I've done, been doing finance degrees for the last six years. And I think what I, what I tell people is, well, I don't think I had a good answer back then, but um, now reflecting back on uh, doing something like that at university, very much the the job that I do, kind of scaling scaling tranche, is very much about how do I absorb lots of information. You know, we're all constantly being kind of bombarded with different information, information about what we're doing with our team, with our customers, with data, with things happening outside in the market, all of this stuff. And what a history degree you know taught me was how do you uh, take lots of information and be able to, to, to work out what it all means and to be able to distill that and explain that to someone else. And so uh, everything else you can learn on the job. And obviously history repeats. So, uh, so there you go. Now, now, in your case, you know, another thing that I found really interesting is that you did your master's in philosophy. So not only history repeats, but it's also finding the why behind things. So, so why philosophy? Come on. Uh, I don't know if there's uh, if I knew the answer to that, I would uh, um, I'd be uh, I'd be I'd be in a different role. So uh, I'll, I'll I'll hold the course on uh, on on that one, Alejandro. Now, in your case, you know when you enter the world of uh, working, because I mean you did quite uh, some time at corporate before you went at it as an entrepreneur, and we'll talk about your journey now with Tranche just a little bit. But the first thing that you did is investment banking. You know, one thing that is really incredible here in your in your journey is that. Many of the founders that I speak with that have gone out to build really meaningful companies, they've either been an investor, they've either been a banker or a consultant. You've had in your case, you know, the three of them really before going into, into entrepreneurship. Um, you know, you even moved to San Francisco and we'll talk about that in a little bit where you were advising, investing and uh, the investment banking. Let's start with that. That's the first thing that you did. So 
investment banking, when it came to, you know, really finding good companies, bad companies, good management teams, bad management teams, what were you seeing there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, I had no idea that I wanted to go into investment banking and that's, um, uh, and I still sometimes question it, but the I think when I look back at you know my old team, my old company, for me it was it was a learning experience. Um, you know these these jobs, especially in the junior level, and look, I was very junior as my first job out of out of college is 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 incredibly tough. And um, you know in those roles, you're analyzing information, you're learning about finances, company balance sheets, and you're seeing kind of the, a bit of the real world in action um, rather than just in the textbook. So for me going into the corporate side and maybe why we see entrepreneurs come out of the corporate side is it gives you a really good, solid understanding. Um, not only how do you work hard to a really high standard, um, how do you work long hours, you know, if that's uh, something or how to work efficiently or inefficiently, but you, um, you get a really solid corporate uh, kind of footing that enables you to apply those skills later to your own business. Even if, you know, you were dealing with massive billions of dollars of businesses, et cetera or even smaller ones, um, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, we had, a lot of my generation were coming out of the cycle after the financial crisis. So we were still seeing some of the impact of the financial crisis. And my speciality was working with financial institutions, you know, across Europe. Um, and uh, we saw a lot of things that we might not have experienced because we were too young at the time. And you were obviously as well working on doing cleanups, no? So when it came to cleanups, what, what did that mean and, and what did you see? Well, I can't go into kind of all the information, but definitely I was sent to a few interesting places. Um, I I remember a board meeting in Cyprus where I was sitting there with my with my boss, and then suddenly everyone started shouting in Greek um, in the board meeting. And to this day, I still have no idea what was said, which can make your job quite quite difficult if you're operating in another country. But clearly, something happened at the end of it, um, and, and then we left. But so there's a lot of a lot of really interesting things uh, coming out of that. And now, you know, we're seeing. With the banking system, you know, the fragility that I saw back in, you know, even still in 2014, where, you know, we've seen in the last month. Now, in that case, you know, what you're seeing in the last month, you know, what what kind of uh, things have you seen, you know, that uh, maybe that you were seeing before or that you learned on how to prepare, you know, yourself for the storm? I mean, what, what were some of the things that, that you learned, you know, like the top three things about preparing yourself for one of those storms? Yeah, I think, you know, again, I was too young when the financial crisis happened. So I don't think there are, and you, when I was working in investment banking, it, the opposite happened. Interest rates dropped massively. Um, and, and then they stayed low for, you know, for the last 10 years or so. So um, actually, the thing that helped us over the last month, and we've been doing a lot of work supporting the community, um, as well as managing our own internal risk, is Actually, the COVID crisis, when I was a CFO of my, uh, the last company that I was working with, um, and we were a consumer-facing business in the property sector, we were a digital mortgage platform. Um, and when the pandemic hit in the UK and no one could leave their, leave their home, suddenly we were thinking, well, what's going to happen to the business? Because no one can leave their home. How are they going to buy another home? And what you realize is that everyone adapts. And in those moments where, you know, we'd be looking at, you know, the TV broadcast, what, what is the government saying today? What's changing, et cetera, and adapting to that on a daily basis. You know, over the last month with uh, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and obviously the other issues in the banking system, all we can do is adapt. We can plan to a certain extent, but you know, when a bank run happens, a bank run happens and you have to adapt from that. 
Um, and so I don't think I learned about, you don't learn to adapt in the bad time, in the good times, you learn to adapt often in the times where it's tough. Now, the next, the next stop for you was consulting uh, and you did Bain. You know, I find that uh, when you work at uh, one of those consulting firms, you really understand how to grab a big problem and how to break it down into small problems. And then you tackle them each. So from a approach or from a lens of approaching problems from a very strategic uh, point of view, what did you get from your experience at Bain? Now, I think I really valued working on problem solving, really, on where you had to, and not just problem solving kind of general and saying, ah, oh, here's a problem, let's break it down. For me, the most interesting thing was learning something new very quickly. Often when you're doing a diligence on a company for, a, for an investment firm, you have you know, less than a month to become an expert in something that you would never encounter before. And you've got to quickly understand the industry, the market, the competitive landscape, um, and you know whether that is a good thing based on everything you can glean in a very short amount of time, and I love that. Um, you know, and you become a you become an expert in very weird and wacky things. You know, I did a big project on whether it was a good idea to buy a European train toilet company. Now I knew nothing about train toilets, uh, but now I tell I know quite a lot, probably too much uh, that I want to know. But um, that ability to get up to speed very quickly to digest information and work out what's important and what's not, I think is what gives you, is where the skill set comes. And after that is problem solving and after other softer skills. But you've got to be very quick at getting to the root of the issue. So at this point, you were dealing with a lot of operators and, um, you know, really seeing like the, the, the stuff that they were dealing with and, and their apps, the downs, the strategicness, the, um, you know, all, all, all of the above. Uh, you decide to really shift gears and to go more on the operating side. So what, what triggered that? Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm, I'm very honest about this. I saw a you know, very good career path in the consulting world, you know, a number of years in this position, a number of years here, 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 and you kind of climb up in the corporate world. But at that specific time, um, for me, I wanted to feel the exposure of the problems being your own problems and therefore being more invested in them rather than solving other people's problems and feeling disconnected and saying, look, we're here to help you company A, here is our findings, go complete this strategy or this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's very different from owning that P&L yourself and um, really taking on that risk yourself. And I think that's what I was looking to do uh, by joining uh, a startup at the time and one with a problem that I believed in at the time as well. So in this case, I mean, you, you moved quite, the, um, quite up the ladder. I mean, you started there and then all of a sudden, you know, like really doing operations and then all of a sudden you find yourself as the CFO, especially during, you know, some really interesting times. So how was that journey like? Yeah, I, th I think for me, it wasn't expected. I, uh, I was doing a lot on the operations and strategy side, and then there happened to be, you know, there was a change around management, and I was given an opportunity and something that I hadn't factored into my career path. If you said, hey, uh, Philip, do you want to be a CFO of this company when you're 27, 28 in a global pandemic? I probably would have said, no, or that's not the role that I'm kind of interested in. But I think what you realize is that everything you do, you know, from being that investment banker back in the beginning, is a building block to something that will later happen. And that's very much philosophy that I, that I take. And um, I think anyone that believes they're going to have a linear path through life is, is going to be kind of surprised um, because things happen in unexpected uh, ways. Um, so um, for me, 
uh, I wasn't particularly sure. Um, but I said, you know what, I'll give it my best shot and we'll, we'll see what happens. So here you guys were doing digital, you know, mortgages, you know, pretty much. You were a digital mortgage broker. Uh, and um, eventually one thing that you really got access to was to see how the company went through the different cycles. And more importantly, to go through an acquisition. The company was acquired by Better. So how was that? How, how would you say that that gave you visibility into the world of deal making and, and, and more importantly, into the world of the really like seeing the full cycle of a company, like going from, you know, one stage to the next all the way until reaching the finish line. How was that for you? Yeah, I think, well, firstly, I would say that the finish line probably wasn't the finish line that the company and the investors originally wanted. Um, you know, it was a very difficult time for the company. And we thought that there was, that was a better route, um, the better route to go um, because it was incredibly difficult to fundraise as well. And so we saw a better combination for everyone with the, with the bigger presence. And, you know, I'm pretty open about that. Um, so I think it was, um, I think I learned more in that year than I had learned previously, um, you know, over, over the career. And I think, you know, what you see is, you know, we've seen this at different times, you know, you go through these periods where it's incredibly easy to raise money and then it's incredibly difficult. And then taking it through the cycle, I think the more of these experiences you have and these lived experiences, the more it will help you at LA's point because you either have perspective or you've learned something. Um, and so I think especially at the beginning where, you know, you really see one part of the cycle. In, now we're starting, you know, now, you know, someone at my generation is starting to see a, a full interest rate cycle, you know, where it being cut to, to nothing and then coming, you know, not all the way back up, but back up. And then we'll see what happens over the next nine months. And it's, uh, you know, a black swan event. Um, COVID was black swan event. We now have a, a war going on in mainland Europe, which is affecting inflation across, you know, the whole world. And we also um, have had, you know, two bank, Two, what, two or three bank failures in the last in the last month um, for the first time in quite a while. So it's all kicking back off again. Um, and but these, each of these experiences make you a better leader and a better person to be able to take a step back and think strategically through it. Absolutely. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com 
and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in your case, once this transaction was done, basically you moved to San Francisco. Uh, you were experiencing their innovation, meeting people, advising, you know, helping others. And why did you decide to do that? And how was that the immediate, you know, step for you to really take action and, and start your own company? Yeah, so for me, um, it was uh, uh, something that um, uh, I moved out uh, with. Um, I moved out there and I, I wanted to kind of learn and experience the space and kind of understand what other companies were going through and had an opportunity to do so um, with a friend of mine. And so um, for me, it kind of gave a lot of exposure. It made me realize that I had quite a lot of experiences in my short time that could be helpful to others. Um, and it also made me realize that actually, you know, the imposter syndrome that I had as a CFO of an early stage business, not having ever really particularly you know, applied for the role or anything like that, was the same, similar to the imposter syndrome that, that many founders have, you know, including myself as well, um, but that many founders have around uh, their career and their choices around entrepreneurship. And, I, you know, I realized that, well, actually, you know, I've you know, I, I'd gone from at Bain advising companies thinking, you know, maybe maybe I could work on the inside to then kind of advising founders, especially around fundraising and deals and various items, thinking, well, actually, maybe I could be a founder myself. Um, and so that's why it kind of led me to say, well, actually, maybe I can take, uh, maybe there's an opportunity for me here to, to explore doing this myself. And I went through a process um, by where we got to the current business. So what was that process like? For me, it was all about who I would set up the company with and as well as where our field of expertise was. And I partnered up with my former head of engineering um, at, uh, at the last company. And I said I needed a technical co-founder and someone that I trusted and worked with for a number of years. Um, and so for us, we, we, we went through a process whereby we worked, looked at the problems that we had as a business and that we had in our industry. And then we said, well, where are our capabilities as well? You know, we've been doing financial services, both of us on the technical and the non-technical side for a number of years. And we wanted to be able to apply that, but also with some things that we learned. And we decided not to go down a consumer business route because we knew how hard consumer businesses were. And we'd done one of them and we didn't want to do a second one for them for the moment. So that's why we went back down the, um, uh, we went into the B2B route. But we knew we wanted to be around financial services and we went through the various pain points and then you start crafting your idea and you start testing on people and you start working out, ah, well, can I do X, Y, or Z, et cetera. Um, and, um, you know, we've learned an incredible amount in the last kind of 18 months. And for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Tranche? How do you guys make money? So Tranche is a B2B buy now, pay later provider that enables software and services businesses to get paid up front while offering their customers flexible payment terms. So we partner with everyone from major law firms to software providers to be able to offer their customers flexible payment terms. So rather than saying, please send us a wire, ACH or check, they can come via a tranche checkout to, for a small fee, pay flexibly over two to 12 months to provide working capital management to mean that these larger costs that they can invest in up front, but still spread them out. And that's where the business um, was, came out from, the ability to split payments into tranches. And also, why do you guys decide to go so quickly uh, globally? You know, typically people would uh, do a few cycles of the business and then, you know, they go 
uh, global. But in this case, you guys did UK and the US uh, and, you know, you had that approach. But go ahead. Why? Yeah, really good question, um, Alejandro. And I, I think for us, we um, we realized that there was a lot of opportunity in the US and that the market was a lot bigger. And there was also kind of different attitudes around credit and payments. So, for example, in the US, um, 40% of B2B payments are via check versus 1% in the UK. So the payment system was very much behind in the US, which is where we thought we could make the most impact for customers. And that's why we, we'd also uh, participated in the Y Combinator Accelerator program. And for us, that was a great impetus um, you know, as a US incorporated company to say, look, we're just going to be a US business. And we retain a European presence, which is where we have our software engineering and development. So how did you think, too, about the distribution of teams? Because obviously, as they say, you know, there's different cultures, you know, in different offices. So how did you go about, you know, making sure that there was some type of unified culture to a certain degree? Yeah, I think one of them is just around how you manage time. So, for example, you know, we hold most of our meetings that are kind of either in the morning in the East Coast and in the afternoon in, in, in Europe just to essentially ensure that there's kind of decision-making can happen in the common hours and then kind of the individual work can happen at the other hours. So for us, it's all about the time zones and being communicative, um, having everything within kind of unified workspaces. So everything's either on Notion, it's in Slack, uh, having a structure to the cadence of meetings for different teams, information flow, um, so that, um, we can keep the teams unified. And then you know, myself personally, I split most of my time between the two places. So I try and act as a common link between. So in this case for you guys, how much have you guys, uh, how much have you raised, you know, in terms of capital today? Yeah. So, um, you know, we've raised a mixture of debt and equity. Um, we've raised around, you know, over $5 million of equity and we've raised a credit facility uh, that enables us access to over $100 million to be able to support businesses kind of uh, with their with their working capital, and how is the equity versus debt work for a company like this? Yeah, so you know we use our equity for our operating expenses and you know funding some of the credit facility, and then uh, the credit facility is what we use to lend out to um, our our businesses to help them pay flexibly on their terms. And for a financial services business like this, how do you go about navigating the rising interest rates? Yeah, really good question. So it's something that we factored into the business for a while, um, and it's something that we've got to manage. I think, you know, on the one hand, it has increased demand because equity has become more expensive and it's become kind of more restrictive in the sense that there's less of it around as interest rates uh, have risen. Um, but also that, you know, banks have also retreated in this time. So alternative finance, alternative payment providers um, are really helpful because what we do is we use open banking, we use banking connections to underwrite customers which enable us to essentially be able to provide a different level of kind of credit insight uh, than, say, traditional banks who, um, you know, are, are much slower in this process. And typically when interest rates rise, are more restrictive on credit. Um, and also, you know, with a number of banks kind of going bust as well, there's also a kind of a greater opportunity for alternative payment providers as well. And is the, uh, the, the, the regulatory hurdles, you know, another component to deal with as part of a business like this? Um, less so because we're in, we're in commercial credit. Um, so there's a lot of focus on the consumer side, and rightly so. On the commercial side, it, it really varies state by state. So definitely entering into the U.S. was 
was interesting because we had to navigate different state licenses and rules in various places, which means it's much more complex. You're never entering the U.S. You're entering into 50 states. And if you were to go to sleep tonight, Philip, and you wake up in a world where the vision for tranche is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, for, it's a really great question. For me, it's that every business has a choice to pay flexibly for any invoice and that they um, can go through a digital experience, not just receiving a paper or offline PDF invoice, um, and that they can manage that flexibly in one place um, and on their terms. And we've essentially massively speeded up kind of the dealings of commerce, uh, commerce between businesses um, across the U.S. Because how big of a problem is this? Yeah, we think it's a huge problem. Um, everyone ultimately wants to be paid um, on time and everyone else wants to pay flexibly. So 60% of invoices in the US are overdue right now. Um, and, you know, we see the impact of, you know, with Silicon Valley Bank, First Public, et cetera, Signature Bank. Um, there are still people that don't have access to bank accounts. They can't even send payments at the moment. So the payment connections in the US and the payment rails are significantly behind what we see in Europe, some parts of Europe at least. So as people say, you know, being at the right time in history is everything. So it sounds like with what you guys are doing and with, you know, shit hitting the fan, you know, sort of saying, you know, it sounds like uh, maybe that wave, you know, is going to go a little bit faster, the one that you guys are writing. So, so how are you thinking about that and how are you thinking about writing it in the most effective way possible? Yeah, definitely. Um, so for us, you know, um, on the, the day that the SVB crisis hit, we didn't have any money in the U.S. bank. And we decided that we would essentially offer, a, we would adapt. We offered a 30-day credit line product that would enable customers to pay their short-term um, needs. And we had customers apply to us. We've never been busier in that 72 hours. I think I worked the entire weekend uh, while traveling between the US and the UK. And we um, clients that came to us had over a billion dollars locked up in SVB, and they didn't know what they would be able to do. And so we were there for the community at that point. And, you know, we, we had a lot of exposure trying to support people that weekend. And that's because we made a very quick decision to say that we would support no matter what. And we would work as hard as we could to, to, help, to help people. So you, you never know when, as you put it, you know, things are going to hit the fan as such. Um, all we have to do as a leader is say, look, I've seen things like this. I haven't seen this. What are the risks of doing X, Y, and Z? How do we know, you know, how can we think through this, but also make quick decisions because we're a small and nimble team that enables us to support people. Um, and we had to react very quickly. Um, and that, that wasn't easy, but, you know, we've learned so much in that two-week period as a result as well. So I guess, um, you know, dealing with, with something like that, you know, being able to... Um to obviously capitalize on the on the situation too because i think that that for you guys you know was phenomenal as well i mean how do you how do you i guess you know like maybe you got something from the consulting years when it comes to really taking a look at at the picture and being able to understand what is the best course of action uh and and doing it in a very proactive way and making sure that the team is rowing you know towards the same place at the same time no yeah, I think there's no such thing as a kind of best course of action. There's only a best course of action based on the facts that you have at that time. And, you know, both acting, you know, as a founder and a co-founder um, to, to be decisive, but also making sure that you bring your team in on that journey so that they feel part of the decision-making journey as well, even if the accountability and the responsibility is with you as well. So... 
I think, you know, there's no such thing. And, you know, certainly we, we made mistakes. Um, but all you can do is play what's in front of you. As I say, play what's in front of you and with the best facts and with your risk management hat on as well. And um, th things will always happen that you don't expect to happen. So obviously during, you know, this time, either as a founder or, you know, working with, with the previous company, with Trustro, I mean, you, you've, you've learned a lot, you know, even, you know, working at Bain or, or at Rothschild. If I was to put you into a time machine and bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment that you were, you know, in the middle of your studies, you know, history, philosophy, and you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self. And, you know, let's assume that Philip, you know, that younger Philip was listening, right? Because our younger selves, you know, typically don't listen as much. No? But let's say that younger self was, was listening and you were able to give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? For launching a business, I think, you know, the advice that I give is um, the advice that we learned at Y Combinator, which is launch quickly and make sure someone wants your product before you build it. Um, so there's so much technology out to do things very quickly and to do an MVP, but there's always a tendency in us as humans to be perfectionists, make things look pretty, make things feel in certain ways. And I think you know, the great thing with where technology is at right now is that you can mock something up and you can put it in front of customers and you can get people to be very interested in something. And so I think uh starting early launching quickly and not being afraid to fail ultimately um i think in the us what i've learned is there's a very different culture to failure than there is in europe um you know in europe if you failed at something maybe you need to take a time out and kind of think again um maybe go back to a normal corporate job whereas in the us i think there's an attitude that says if you fail then what are you going to do next how are you going to take those learnings um and then the final thing is, is, you know, when you're young, you think, oh, I get into my first job and this is what I'm doing till I retire. I was scared of that. I saw these people at this bank that had worked there for 40, 50, 40 years. And I said, is this, am I going to be in this team for 40 years? It's quite scary when you're 21. Um, and then what you realize is that life's not particularly linear and that you, you know, you do move between places and you learn a lot and you, you build on each of those experiences and it forms the next thing that makes you a better person and a better leader. Absolutely. I love that. So, uh, Philip, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, probably just come onto LinkedIn and send me a message. I'm, I'm always on there and pretty active. So um, uh, feel free to, to connect, send me a message and uh, you know, grab a coffee or, or jump on a Zoom. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Philip, well, it has been an honor to have you on the show with us. Thank you so, so much for taking the time. Thank you very much, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.